electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Claire Odumodi. Today on Squawk Pod. Lifeline. Markets are fragile. People are nervous. They are looking for weak hands. Is bad news actually going to be considered bad news? Was anyone worried in 2008 about their credibility? Keep it from blowing up. Isn't that the only job? Credit Suisse backstopped by the Swiss Central Bank, the latest in a wild week of worry over the financial sector. What's the impact on U.S. economic policy? CNBC's Steve Leisman. The outlook for the Fed remains pretty much in very dovish territory, more so than it did a week ago. Ro Khanna, California congressman on the Silicon Valley bank collapse and its threat to tech culture. I think this shows that the libertarian philosophy does not work, that there are times that you need government involvement. Rocking the markets, rocking C-suites and how to keep the business boats afloat. Former four-star general Stanley McChrystal. If you strengthen your organization's ability to respond, their confidence to adapt, their communication, they're going to be much more responsive when that crisis does come. It's Thursday, March 16th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Kelly Evans. Good to be with you, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin this morning. Joe and Becky are doing? both off today. Welcome well. to uh, the show. Welcome to, what do we call it this morning, the... Uh, the early alarm? Yeah. 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 How'd it go? Um, I thought you were talking about the banking system. Oh. Well, that's, that's the other early alarm. That's like, how'd it go? Yeah. I was going to ask you. We've got a couple of alarms going on right now. Yeah, exactly. Let's get to the latest now uh, on this week's bank saga. Credit Swiss shares surging in Swiss trading and in the U.S. pre-market after saying they'll borrow more than $53 billion from the Swiss National Bank. Let's get to Steve Leisman uh, to tell us what this means for other banks and the Fed. First, though, let's go to Jeff Cutmore. He is at the bank's headquarters in Zurich. Uh, Jeff, great to see we, uh, be with you again. Uh, hope all's well. You know, we'll catch up another time. But uh, do tell, what's the latest there? Yeah, this is a, an incredible story, really. Shares up uh, 40% in European trade. But before I talk about the central bank stepping in with this uh, $54 billion lifeline, let's mention the Saudi National Bank because... The SNB, the Saudi National Bank, is an anchor investor now in Credit Suisse and bought into the bank as part of last year's major restructuring announcement. Now, in part, the sell-off we saw yesterday was about the fact that the Saudi National Bank chairman, Amar al-Qudairi, was asked about providing further support for Credit Suisse. And he said a couple of things. He said, no, we're not going to do that. 
for regulatory reasons because their uh, holding at the moment is just below 10%. And if they lifted it, it would trigger increased regulatory oversight from the Swiss authorities, which they don't want. So he said, no, we're not going to take a further stake. But he also said he didn't think it was necessary. It was unwarranted in his terms. If you look at the you know, um, how the entire banking sector dropped and you say like, uh, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people were just looking for excuses to, you know, it's, it's panic, uh, a little bit of panic. Um, I believe completely unwarranted, whether it be for Credit Suisse or for the entire market. Uh, we did have a failure last week, but that's nowhere, nothing to do with what we saw in 2008. This is just one isolated incident. Uh, the regulators uh, cut off the uh, contagion and, uh, any possibility of spillover. And that is the conundrum here because we know that uh, Credit Suisse at the fourth quarter, which I was in Zurich to report, had a CET1 ratio of over 14%. The uh, liquidity capital ratio, if you like, uh, uh, about 150%. So no hole in the balance sheet as such. This is a very different story from SVB. But markets are fragile. People are nervous, and obviously as interest rates rise, liquidity sucked out of the system, they are looking for weak hands. And Credit Suisse, because it doesn't seem to be able to get out of its own way, looks like one of those weak hands. But I have to say, this lifeline from the SNB really should uh, draw a line under the recent jitters, effectively the central bank is now backstopping what it says is a systemically important bank for Switzerland, end of. Jeff, is there any talk about what would happen, for instance, to, you know, we talk to Credit Suisse analysts here in the U.S. all the time about different stocks and they obviously have a, a big presence here. Um, any, any kind of talk about what the future of that unit could be, if necessary? Well, there's, there's, there's constant chatter about different Credit Suisse businesses because the restructuring program, uh, which was announced by the latest set of management, and I've been covering this uh, story for such a long time, it almost feels like there's a revolving door sometimes for the C-suite for Credit Suisse because of the series of errors and problems and scandals that they've experienced over the last decade or so. But you know, the, the bank is in the process of kind of carving itself up anyway with the, uh, the boutique investment banking business now being spun off, the uh, securitized products business being sold, the key focus now on investment and wealth management and a big focus on trying to get hold of those high net worths in Asia, Latin America and other parts of the world here. So you could argue that in the short term, even though this story now appears to be somewhat settled by the SNB getting involved and providing that credit line, the longer term conversation will continue about whether this is a standalone bank Right. And Credit Suisse continues to exist or whether ultimately there is a another buyer who comes in and takes parts of the business down the road. For the time being, though, that is not the focus here in Zurich. Jeff, thank you. And, and Andrew, it's also interesting to hear, you know, everyone trying to figure out where it's going to happen, where this piece might right. go. But the sort of the problem being 
uh, in the U.S. at least. Could, what would you do with Credit Suisse in terms of know your customer, anti-money laundering? I mean, these would be big obstacles to potential U.S. buyers of some of these components, which is why most of what I hear, I don't know what right. you hear, is about this oh. staying, you know, as a Swiss... But I don't think Credit Suisse, I don't think, I don't think the country, by the way, Would is, is yeah. selling the bank. I mean, I think the reason why they're backstopping the bank is this, this is, a, to them, a national treasure, and that's not going anywhere fast. What's interesting to me is how we're all, and we'll talk to Steve Leeson about this in a second, how we're supposed to think about, I mean, the good news is counterparty risk effectively goes away, so all of those European banks that were a little bit, people were nervous about. But I want to know, and I'll talk, we want to talk to Steve about this, were people really just nervous about counterparty risk? I think they were worried about something else. In, in, some, in, in some terms of, the, of Credit Suisse? In, or? No, in terms of some of these other banks. We were oh, all, sure. We were no, all looking at Credit oh, Suisse, and then yes. we were looking at all the other European banks, and everyone said, oh, right, now, right. is this the all clear? I don't know. Right. No, the, right. is it just a coincidence that banks across the globe are under pressure right now? I mean, no, obviously not. Let's bring Steve into this conversation. Uh, Steve, what do you think? Uh, I think it's a different dynamic of counterparty risk right now, uh, I, Andrew, in the U.S. banking system. Remember in the financial crisis, the counterparty risk was bank to bank. I think the counterparty risk discussion right now is depositor to bank, right? And the question here in the United States is whether or not uh, the Fed's recent program has staunched that risk or made people confident. But let me just talk quickly, uh, uh, Andrew, about the lifeline that's been given from the Swiss National Bank to Credit Suisse. It has put a Fed rate hike back into play for next week. If you take a look at what's happened here uh, to the March, uh, uh, the probability of a hike next week by the Federal Reserve rising to 69% as priced into the Fed funds futures market, 31% chance of a uh, uh, the Fed having no change. At the most anxious moments yesterday, these numbers were reversed with markets betting firmly on a pause. Not the case anymore. But the outlook for the Fed remains pretty much in very dovish territory, more so than it did a week ago amid concerns of the impact of increased risk in the banking sector. A market that had been priced for a 550, write that number down, year-end rate is now below 4%. I have never seen 150 basis points of easing put into the system in a week. So whatever the Fed is seen doing next week, it's priced to undo it over the next several months and then some. What about the ECB? Well, a market that had been confident of a 50 base point hike is now 60-40 in favor of that 50, but it's been very volatile all morning. It could be anything different right now, even as I speak. It's all about how Lagarde and then Fed Chair Jay Powell play the confidence game. Do they keep hiking to suggest nothing to see here? Or do they stop because, well, maybe there is, Andrew? That's what we've been talking about. Even just yesterday, Steve, we said, is bad news actually going to be considered bad news? And you have to keep hiking to almost suggest that maybe the news isn't actually that bad. I think the reality on the ground is really what's going to determine it. And one of these things is the signal that it sends. It's very important. On the other hand, they're going to have information and data we don't have. Is money coming out of these regional and community right. banks? We don't see that. The only thing you can, the only way, the only proxy for that, Andrew, is looking at the regional banks. Okay, Steve, stock. just tease us with one piece, though. The one piece I want you to tease this with is how much does the quote-unquote credibility of the Fed matter? That's something you, we've heard from a whole number of guests over the past couple of weeks, this idea. I'm the biting my tongue right now. Can I, can I, can I, I, I throw I don't, that? 
yeah. Don't, by the way, don't shoot the messenger on the question. I want to throw that back on you guys. I want, okay. I, I want to throw that back on you guys because that word credibility. Yeah, I don't get it either. That's why that? I'm asking the question. What do you? No, no. To me, no, credibility is forestalling a credit crisis and making sure the recession isn't deeper. See, this idea that they need to worry about credit. Let's all go back to any of it. I mean, obviously, especially 2008. Was anyone worried in 2008 about their credibility? Keep it from blowing up. Isn't that the only job? Or do we really care if they hike? I mean, so so pause. What's the big deal? Okay. Isn't now, it on the side Kelly, of caution Kelly, more important? Kelly, just to be fair, you're talking about a different kind of credibility. Credibility in terms of managing the banking system. Right. Other people, when they talk about credibility, they mean credibility when it comes to fighting inflation. Another kind of credibility that's out there but is the whether or not they contained. have the ability. Sorry, Kelly. The, the break-evens. You know, we can show the five years, for instance, or a two-point. They, they did go up. Well, I that's grant the that. point. In, in, but 2.3 percent. When, when I think about credibility, I look, for example, at the longer-run inflation expectations. Through all of this, as we approach double-digit inflation, longer-term inflation expectations remain contained. My knowledge of the central bank is that's the only credibility they really care about. Has exactly. the market traded with a long-term belief that the Fed would win the inflation fight? If you put up the 10-year, that may be the most important sign of credibility out there, which is that over this whole process, the market never traded with much belief at all that the Fed was going to lose control of long-term inflation expectations. And I'll give you an example of that. If you look at that 4% yield on the 10-year, okay, which is now 35 Four percent meant you. Were, if, if you thought about perhaps a two percent inflation rate, meant you, means you got two percent real. It was actually a good buy. People were like, "Why are you buying long-term treasuries?" So that credibility, and I could I could show you an inflation expectations chart that the Fed looks at. That's the credibility that matters to them. Is this idea? Do they have? And you go back and you look at what happened to the market before the Fed began cutting or sorry hiking and made clear it was going to hike. Markets went up. That credibility of we will yeah. follow through right. and rates will rise, that's the credibility the Fed cares about. Okay. The other credibility stuff, different story. Steve, you got a lot of credibility with me. Zero. Liftoff. Virgin Orbit now furloughing nearly all of its employees and pausing operations for a week as it tries to seek a funding lifeline. Sources telling CBC the company executives Brief staff on the situation yesterday afternoon. The furlough is unpaid, although employees can cash in their paid time off. The rocket building company uses a modified jet to send satellites into space by dropping a rocket from under the aircraft's wing mid-flight. But its last mission failed and the rocket did not reach orbit earlier this week. Company CEO Dan Hart canceled a scheduled appearance at the last minute on a panel at a space industry conference in Washington. And you're looking at that stock Yes, one of the SPACs, one of the Chamath Palihapitiya SPACs, no less, right. at 57 cents, 58 cents will round up. And, and you know, it, it's worth pointing these out because when people talk about potential corporate bankruptcies, yep. and I mean, these are the little stories where it's happening. This is where the capital oh, is evaporating. For sure, for sure. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, shockwaves from the Silicon Valley bank collapse and rescue with a lawmaker from the heart of Silicon Valley itself. It's Ro Khanna. I put most of the blame on the bank management. I mean, they didn't hedge those long-term bonds. They didn't have the financial sophistication, frankly, that a lot of banks in uh, New York have. Uh, and they were vulnerable. Plus, the U.S. government 
threatening action against TikTok, what it means for U.S.-China relations. They're so over-reliant on an export economy. We have a 400 billion trade deficit. Let me tell you, they need us a lot more than we need them. We'll be right back. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Kelly Evans. Joan Beck, you're off today, uh, but that's not going to stop us because we've got a lot going on. Meantime, the White House now wants the Chinese owners of TikTok to divest their shares of that video sharing app or could face a ban, they say, in the United States. This is according to multiple reports in response to the Chinese foreign ministry saying the U.S. has not provided evidence that TikTok is a national security threat. TikTok saying in a statement that the changing app's ownership won't add any new restrictions on data flows. Instead, it's calling for, quote, transparent U.S.-based protection of U.S. user data and systems and says it's already working on a third-party monitoring system. This is something they've been working on for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, forever. It's taken some time. They say there's a different algorithm that's used in the United States and Hmm. it's all very separate. And, of course, the questions are, do you believe them? Our next guest represents the heart of Silicon Valley and is calling for more bank regulation in response to SVB's collapse. I want to welcome Congressman uh, Ro Khanna from California. Nice to see you, sir, at the table, no less. Good to see you in person. Okay, so we've been talking all week about SVB and what needs to happen next. But before we even get to the regulatory side, because there's a lot of finger pointing at the regulators and at the supervisors, uh, at the, the managements of these companies, I'm curious sort of where you think this lands, because I've taken the position, and you can disagree with me, that at some level, this entire episode was this remarkably unforced error. There were mistakes made by the management, and I have no sympathy for that. But at the same time, this was like a little, uh, uh, you know, a, I don't even want to call it a fire. There was a little bit of smoke in the room, and which probably could have been doused with some water. But, uh, you know, people screamed fire in the theater, uh, and everybody ran for the exits. I, look, I put most of the blame on the bank management. I mean, they didn't hedge those long-term bonds. They didn't have the financial sophistication, frankly, that a lot of banks in uh, New York have. Uh, and they were vulnerable to v- very large deposit holders. I mean, look, Bank of America, for example, has millions of accounts, and many of them under 250000 This right. had maybe 20, 30 accounts, large accounts of a few VCs say we're concerned it's susceptible to a bank run, and that was irresponsible. What do you think about the venture capitalists and the Silicon Valley community, though, that oftentimes is talking all, you know, very frequently about personal responsibility and then all of a sudden switches gears when they need help? 
Well, that's uh, not a consistent. I mean, and that's why I think that depositors need to be protected. I was joking with someone. I said maybe now that they are advocating for a guarantee of depositors, the next step will be a guarantee for health insurance and we'll t turn them into advocates for Medicare for all. But I think this shows that the libertarian philosophy uh, does not work, that there are times that you need government involvement. Right. But at the same time, the question is, if we do guarantee all of these deposits, what it actually does for, it's the same question we've been asking all morning, what it does for moral hazard, what it right. does for the type of risk taking that may therefore come as a result of these guarantees. Is that the unexpected uh, or, or unresolved issue on the other side of this? Here's why I think we needed to guarantee the depositors. Uh, if you didn't, you'd have four banks in this country. Everyone would be pulling their money out of uh, the regional banks and putting it in Bank of America, Citibank, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, which, by the way, are more or less guaranteed. People think that we would uh, right. actually support them. Uh, the, the, we have about $10 trillion in this country that is under FDIC. We have about $8 trillion that is not. And the question is, how do you raise bank premiums in a way to fund that $8 trillion and not have that fee fall on the ordinary deposit account holders, but have a fee on larger accounts? And I think that's something we need to work towards and reform. Right, but even if there's a bigger fee, there's still this idea that once you have the gear, so you could charge people a little bit more to keep their money in the bank. They might not. They might just go to other more risky uh, parts of the financial system that, by the way, blew up in 2008, money market funds and the like. But even if you charge them that fee, if you guarantee it, you don't solve the issue of how banks are going to run their companies, right? How they're going to reach for profit. Even in this case, they could have bought bills instead of longer dated bonds, but they would have made no money. So I don't know how you change that, that mismatch, that incentive. You're absolutely right. And this is why I think the regional banks need more regulation. I mean, look, SVB lobbied not to have stress tests, not to have liquidity tests. Uh, in exchange for having more of a guarantee on the deposit, they need to be open to more regulation to have basic stress tests and liquidity tests. But here's what I, the moral hazard argument, I mean, let me guarantee you, there's no one at SVB in the executives who are thinking, great, my life's great, I got away with this. I mean, they're gonna face a DOG invest, DOJ investigation, an SEC investigation, rightfully, their careers are ruined. Uh, I think most regional banks are not wanna, are not want to go bankrupt. So let me ask you about First Republic. This, I mean, this this was hardly the only problematic California bank, in part because of the high proportion of uninsured deposits. Uh, some of the issues there. First Republic is down again. It's around $23 a share. But the declines that we've seen haven't stopped. And there's reports this morning about it potentially being involved in a sale. Can you comment on what you think would or wouldn't be appropriate in resolving this? And the fact that this still bleeding means that the measures taken so far haven't actually totally stopped this problem. I believe what Secretary Yellen and Powell did was uh, extraordinary, and I do think it's going to stem the bleeding. Uh, I wish they had gotten there Saturday, but they got there in time on Sunday evening. And what they've said is, if you have a Treasury bond, uh, we're going to value it in terms of the liquidity uh, at what it's currently at full value. It's not at the discounted rate. I do think that that's going to be enough uh, to stop some of the bleeding. And I think they've been very, very, they deserve a lot of credit, in my view, of how they've handled it. Why isn't the market giving them more credit this morning? Because if they had handled the issue, First Republic shouldn't be down another 25 percent. Well, First Republic originally on Monday came, came back up. And look, people are anxious. I mean, you had Silicon Valley Bank collapse. You had Signature collapse. Uh, there is an understandable anxiety. Should the guarantee, let's put it this way, be expanded to more, for instance, municipal bonds? Uh, so for, at 
par we're currently talking about. I think in the facility, uh, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, but I don't think munis, for instance, would be part of that. Are we going to have to see this guarantee expand as the types of assets that are problematic at various different banks also continues to expand, if it does? I think everything has to be on the table. Uh, my sense is that this should be enough, but my view, uh, seeing how Secretary Yellen and Chair Powell took action, is they will expand it if it's necessary. I mean, look, here's the thing. When someone is bleeding, when there is someone who is uh, having an emergency, what you have to do is stop the bleeding. And everyone is saying, well, what principle? And I get that. But ultimately, you've got to first stop the bleeding, right. and then we can debate but the principle. Can I say this about the... Look, I am, I'm the first person to say you've got to stop the bleeding. Uh, I thought you needed to do the bailouts in, in 2008. It was a very unpopular position to have. I think you had to do what you did this weekend. I think the problem, though, is we've become a nation of bailouts, um, and at the same time, we're unwilling typically to pay for them. So we get into these situations where we socialize the losses, I say it over and over again, we privatize the gains, uh, the folks who are making the most money ultimately don't pay for it on the other end, and then we sit around and say we don't have enough money to do anything. And that's the problem. And so to me, the question is, until you can get to a point where the people who actually are going to lose realize they're going to lose and they have to pay for it, we have to figure out some. Talk about, mor talk about moral hazard. That's the ultimate moral hazard that we're living in right now. And I think it's fair. And I think there are a lot of people uh, that share your sentiment. Uh, there are a couple things that we need to do. We need to make sure clearly here that the, the shareholders and executives lose, that there's a clawback of the executives' compensation and bonus. I mean, the fact that they're making millions of dollars is outrageous. The second thing is we have to have more regulations. Uh, we can't have deregulation. And the third thing is have a higher premium on the high deposit accounts. They're, you talk to a lot of these companies and they'll say, well, pay more to make sure that we have more insurance. Uh, before you go, TikTok, what do you think? I, I'm pleased with what the administration has done, which is to say, let's force the sale. They've given the Chinese companies a choice. Uh, either sell it uh, or uh, they have to leave. That, and, that seems fair. And what do you think the longer-term implication is for the relationship between the U.S. and China as a function of this decision? The, the, China cares about one thing, which is our one China policy. I just led a bipartisan delegation to Taiwan. I met with President Tsai. And it, we need to make sure that they have the defense, but at the same time, we need to have engagement and affirm uh, the one China policy, which is the status quo. And that, I think, is the critical... And you don't, think that, you don't think that China is going to say, hey, Nike, we've got a problem now. Uh, hey, Starbucks, we've got a problem. Hey, Apple, by the way, in your state, we've got a problem here. Uh, this isn't going to work the way it used to anymore because uh, you folks are... Uh, uh, playing hardball in a way that we didn't uh, expect. Well, no, they can't. They, uh, I wish. I wish they had more focus on their domestic production. I wish they had actually a service economy. They're so over reliant on an export economy. We have a 400 billion trade deficit. Let me tell you, they need us a lot more than we need them. And so this is starting to rebalance things. And I assume your constituents, including Mark Zuckerberg, are very happy today. The uh, <laughs> why is that? Well, because he, who's the benefit? Who's, if TikTok gets either uh, shut down or sold, who's the winner? Well, look, Silicon it, Valley. It, 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 it may right. not be. Spiegel at Snap is, right. is, you know. Maybe they're L.A., but yeah. That's right. a fair point. It may not be. I, I hope it's not Facebook that gets the, uh, the new TikTok. It could be someone else. I mean, there could be, there could be a new entrepreneur okay. ready to, to build I'm it. I'm going to follow you on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you. If I don't, I do already. We, yes. we, we follow each yeah, other. We follow each other. We're <laughs> followers. In the DMs. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. Give Meta more traffic. Follow Andrew on Instagram at Sorkin Says. And while you're in a following mood, make sure you're following this podcast wherever you're listening right now. Turn on your notifications so you don't miss a thing.
Anyway, there's still more to come on this episode of Squawk Pod. Army General turned business consultant Stanley McChrystal on the risks that worry America's CEOs. They worry about pandemics. This week, they're worried about a banking crisis. They were worried about supply chains recently, war in Europe, maybe war in Asia, election security, cyber attacks, accidents, you name it. They worry about that. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod, today with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Kelly Evans. Straight up and Andrew, Karen, one and two. Here's Andrew. Q. Our next guest is a retired four-star Army general who's using his experience on the battlefield to advise leaders in the boardroom on managing risk. And boy, is there a lot of it. I'm going to bring in General Stanley McChrystal right now. He served as commander of the U.S. forces, of course, in Afghanistan. He's now founder and CEO of the consulting firm McChrystal Group. Thank you uh, so much uh, for uh, waking up early. Uh, General, I'm so curious what you've been telling your clients amid uh, all of the the risk on uh, the the business uh, battlefield, if you will. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I've been out of the military for 12 years now, and I've had the chance to work with a range of very senior and talented CEOs from across all kinds of businesses, Fortune 100 and whatnot. And they're worried and they worry about things that are predictable. They worry about pandemics. This week, they're worried about a biking a banking crisis. They were worried about supply chains recently, war in Europe, maybe war in Asia, election security, cyber attacks, accidents, you name it, they worry about that. But when I talk to them, there's something that's deeper that they worry about. And that's a phenomenon where they can operate themselves as a leader or their businesses as well as their predecessor did, or even as well as they did a year ago. And yet the outcome isn't the same. It doesn't work like it used to. And that's frightening and that's upsetting. And it's because the operating environment in which we have to function is fundamentally different. We found that in war and we're finding that in every specter of business. You know, if we look at Silicon Valley Bank, they failed because they had, you know, questionable depositor base and some investment problems. But the really interesting part to me is once the word started about the bank, how quickly the run went, because it was empowered by digital technology. And so what do you tell them then? Because you're right, the battlefield is a different battlefield, but yeah. it's still a battlefield nonetheless, it seems like. What I tell them is you can't just field ground balls. And what I talk about that is you can't just respond to crises. You've got to prepare to respond. And that takes a little bit of foresight and it takes some investment in time and energy and sometimes money. It's things like getting your organization to communicate all the time, like your firm's life depended upon it, because it does. Do things like question your assumptions. There are drills you can go through, war games you can conduct. 
do detailed after action reviews after things so that you're really focused instead of on that threat over the horizon that you can't really predict and you don't know what it's going to be. Strengthen your own organization because your ability to respond is what gives you the capacity to deal with okay. this. Range so, General, of I'm going to make this complicated because I think there's, <laughs> you know, every company is, you know, trying to grow. Growth is yeah. uh, growth is life in business. And when you have only a finite amount of resources and everything's coming at you, you have to say to yourself, do I want to prepare for the worst outcomes and spend lots of time putting together plans and preparations and other things that I think for some people I say, th this may be inefficient because I have no idea whether this is going to happen or not. Or if I have this finite amount of resources, I need to throw it at the business as of today of what we're actually trying to do or because I'm just trying to get I'm trying to get through the day, frankly, and how you're supposed to balance these two things, this sort of I need to grow desperately versus I need to protect. Yeah. On the one hand, there's this idea that I will just focus on the business and just hope that things don't go badly. And if we win, we win big. On the other hand, there's the idea that you prepare for the absolute worst case. You've got to have a balance. My argument would be you have to run your business and you're always going to accept risk. But the reality is if you strengthen your organization's ability to respond, their confidence to adapt, their communication, they're going to be much more responsive when that crisis does come. Is this, is this advice similar? I mean, do you give the same advice to a startup CEO as you would a Fortune 500 CEO that might have you know, large HR departments and have lots of people around, maybe too many people, but people who can actually do some of the work that could do some of this preparation? Is, is it a different calculus? It's a different conversation. It's really not a different calculus. In the big organization, you have a tremendous amount of inertia. And when you try to turn the battleship, it's hard to get all these different parts to actually implement. So the best senior leaders I've seen get very focused. They give very direct guidance, clear to people that these are the few priorities I want you to go at. And they stick with it. They're relentless. In fact, they don't dilute their message by talking about 15 different right. things. General, I uh, want to thank you for your advice this morning and also, of course, want to thank you for your service to this country. I want to thank you for hanging out. Thank you for More having me. More than hanging out. It's been a lot of fun really to Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. That's our podcast for this Thursday. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Catch them weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And if you missed that, no worries. You can get the best parts of our TV show by following Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Have a lovely day, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.